millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, this is Lainey. Hi, it's Joanna. Welcome to Show Your Work, our podcast about work and our passion for work. But having said that, we were just talking about... uh, like spending a weekend not on that much work. This is the weekend that I have planned. Yes. I know. I, I You are jealous. A little bit. I also don't have work deadlines necessarily or not too many. Uh, but when I said that I might go to a farmer's market, you rolled your eyes at me. I did. Why? I mean, it's not the farmer's market I object to. It's the appointment making with the farmer's market. Um, okay, here's how farmers markets work. They only run for a certain amount of time, a few hours in a given day. So if you want to go, that's when you have to go. I feel like a farmer's market should be something that you stumble upon. Oh, while I'm walking home from coffee or while I'm walking home from wherever I went, there's a farmer's market. Let's go and browse through for our heirloom tomatoes. Oh, so you want to meet cute with the farmer's market. <laughs> But I don't think it should be scrawled on your diary. Like, oh, uh, in two weeks, the farmer's market is coming and I need to put it in my agenda so I can go. Okay. But if you just intend to like troll around downtown Toronto on a Tuesday, hoping you're going to run into a farmer's market, you might be disappointed. But that's the point. Nobody should be hoping to run into a farmer's market. It should just be like, again, as you said, a meet cute, a, oh, look, there's there's a farmer's market. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this is amazing. I love the right? things in your role. So why? I I just, I don't know. I think the idea of appointments at the farmer's market is, like, to me, so, like, twee. And- okay, it's not a dress fitting. It's not an appointment to go and, like, sniff the tomatoes. You go when it's on I and know, buy but the there's thing. a grocery store. You know, like, for you can always do that. You don't have to make an appointment for the traveling farmer's market to come. But the point like, that, like it's so ridiculous when like there are stores made for this exact purpose so that you don't have to wait for the circus to arrive in town. Yeah, but the circus, are we getting into this, is like not <laughs> marked up and not like all packaged and whatever or picked over and you can't get the good stuff on a given Tuesday because they got deliveries It's 2017. On- like that is how we live now. Everything is packaged. You know, for people who are like, oh, the farmer's market, because, you know, it's not like big corporation and whatnot. Where, like, it's not Shakespearean day. <laughs> okay, listen, uh, farmers and farmer's market enthusiasts, come at her. Uh, also, oh, great, right. Now the farmers are going to hate me. It's Thanks. True. Also, I'd like to point out that nowhere at the grocery store can I walk around eating like a lime basil popsicle that somebody has made for me fresh. While I'm listening to a bunch of dads, like, get out their middle-aged joy in a band while shopping for my heirloom tomatoes. I like a farmer's market. I'm not ashamed. Uh, I'm going to make you come with me someday. It's going to be the best. It's such a hipster activity. I mean, my objection is not with the farmers, obviously. It's with the guests of the farmer. So (laughs) so if if you felt that the people at the farmer's market were, like, 
I don't know, suburbanites. Would that make it okay? I don't know. My dog just ran into the fridge for no reason. The fridge was not in, like, in his way. He just decided to knock his head against it. Anyway, I have nothing against the farmers. Um, I just have, like, it's just so hipstery. I just, you know, the farmer's guests, I guess, are like what make me roll my eyes. Right. But so if we roll up to the farmer's market from the suburbs, uh, by the way, which are closer to the farms in the first place, uh, I don't know, in an uncool car, does that make us not hipsters? Wait, so if you lived in the suburbs, you would drive downtown just to go to the farmer's no, market? No, Jesus. There are farmer's markets that aren't in the city, you know. Okay. Got it. Okay. And then sometimes so- we call them stands or even, <laughs> wait for it, farms. <laughs> I'm cool with like going to the farm. But like I said, it's the appointment making with the farmer's market that like is, you know, the thing that rolls into town on like the third Saturday of every month. Anyway, whatever. I, nothing, yeah, farmers, great, do your thing. But just the visitors of the farmer's market with, with that kind of like approach, I'm not down with that. So I just want to be clear here before we leave this, <laughs> since you've talked yourself so amazingly into a corner. Uh, I'm we, just afraid of the farmers. <laughs> but when we go to the farmer's market, you're going to be like, all you hipsters go home. And then who's going to buy from the when farmers? When am I going to the farmer's market? I'm I'm make, when am I making an appointment to go to the I'm farmer's market? I'm going to make you. I'm not going to tell you because I'm, then it'll feel cute. I'm going to surprise <laughs> you and set it up like it's a whole other thing. Like we're going to McDonald's or something. And then I'm going to be like, oh, look, a farmer's market. And then you can tell me whether or not the people there like just stumbled upon it. No, because then I'm, I'll point at you and be like, look at you. This is what I mean. I don't, I don't actually think you have an argument here. I'm enjoying this, but I'm not sure there's actually Probably an argument. Probably not. Probably right. not. Anyway, be mad at me. Um, uh, shall we? Let's get to work. So it's Saturday morning as we're taping this. You're listening on Monday. And on Wednesday evening, uh, got a text from our friend Lorella, who was like, who's watching the Dirty Dancing remake with me? Uh, true confessions, I did not know about it until that moment. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm out of the loop or network TV or something. And so we sat down to watch it. I jumped in on this an hour and 15 minutes late, at which point I picked up my phone and there were like, you know, honestly, 110 unread messages that I had to catch up on between the two of you on our group thread about this. Uh, can you even call it a show? Like I, I it, it was. Okay. If we have jumped in too early. Ugh. Dirty Dancing, a movie made in 1987, uh, was remade into a three-hour television event with commercials in it, but it wasn't a live musical. This is not like the Grease live musical. Um, It was taped poorly. (sighs) It was Uh, all things poorly. Taped poorly, shot poorly, edited poorly. I don't know if it was shot poorly. Poorly, like whatever. I'm not trying to malign the the cinematographers or whatever, but like it was such a disappointment. And so the 110 texts that you uh, picked up your phone for were because we were so mad. But did you know this was coming? Did you? Yeah, I knew it was coming just simply because, um, you know, I I had to read a few VOs for it and whatnot at work. So um, I knew it was coming. I had no intention of watching it. And then I pick up my phone and see the two of you yelling at each other, but at the event. Um, and then I was like, okay, well, let me see what this is all about. And I, ugh, I had to tune in. I think the moment I tuned in is, um, oh God, 
I can't, I, I, like, I want to wipe this memory away. But I tuned in right after they performed together, away. You know, they did the gig. At the Sheldrake. Um, whatever. Like, yes. And they came home and, like, Penny had had complications from her, um, you know, back, back alley abortion. Right. Okay. Yeah. And that was when I was like, what the fuck am I looking at? Why is Johnny Castle so ugly? Let's just, if you are watching this and you are, you know, not sort of, if you did not come of age around the same time, it's hard to overstate how important Dirty Dancing is and was. I say this as somebody who, I didn't get to watch a lot of movies as a kid. Uh, My parents had weird ideas about what I should see and... TV was one thing, but we didn't go see a lot of movies. I don't know how. I do know how. I had a next-door neighbor who watched Dirty Dancing quite literally daily. She used to rotate it with La Bamba. Um, So either one of those was playing. So you watched it where? In the theater for the first time? No, no. Definitely at home. You watched it on a VHS. Okay. Absolutely. Because I know know because I was 13 and I watched in the theater. And I, I, you would have been like. Six. Right. Um, and so, no, and I did not watch it at six. It was maybe a few years later. Remember, it used to take so long for things to come out on VHS? Yes. Um, so, I think, yeah, it took a longer time for sure. So, I watched it, but it was, of course, it was the ugly duckling into a swan story that was so exciting. But that heroine baby, because, of course, I've since watched the movie the real movie, twice to kind of cleanse my palate. (laughs) She was kind of a feminist badass. She stood up for what she believed in. She didn't hesitate to help people when it was important to do so. It kind of holds up, that movie. So, of course, the question becomes, why remake it? I I don't know. I don't know that we will – I don't know, and I don't know that we will ever get a satisfactory answer to that. But – in particular, the reason why we're here and still not over it is because Baby, as you just said, is an icon. Yeah, she really is. And it's um, Jennifer Grey, who played Baby in the in the movie, was like not the biggest movie actress. She was not the like the biggest star going or whatever. She was perfectly vulnerable, perfectly cute. She could dance. And most importantly, she had all this chemistry with Patrick Swayze. Like the chemistry burned off the screen, even though they otherwise like weren't that suited to each other or maybe didn't even like each other that much in real life. But it was steamy in a way that also felt achievable. So casting Baby in a theoretical remake, and I think the reason they did it is because, you know, the the... All the other networks are doing live musicals. So this is sort of ABC's answer. Well, everybody's looking for IP, right? And so this jumps right in on that trend. And so they do this and our baby becomes Abigail Breslin, Little Miss Sunshine. And Abigail Breslin is, as of this podcast, I think she's 21. Um, This project I was reading was in the makes for like almost six years in terms of trying to get it off the ground or whatever and who was involved and who wasn't and so forth. I don't know that she was involved for six years or attached for six years, but it was, guys, it was not a good fit, right? Like Abigail Breslin was not 
a great baby. And neither was, um, what was the dude's name for Johnny? Colt Pratt's. Colt Pratt. We should look it up. I don't want to. No, that's not fair. <laughs> that's, we should look it up. Um, dude's name. He can be him, but he can't be Johnny Castle. Like, I just, ugh. His name literally is Colt Pratt. I thought it was too silly a name for that to be the real name. <laughs> Fine. His name is Colt Pratt. Um, these two had less than no chemistry. Dude could kind of dance. She really could not. No. Um, but most importantly, they just, they didn't look like they had any interest in being together either romantically or physically or anything of the kind. He looked like he was in pain. But the issue, the reason we want to talk about Abigail Breslin, speaking of typecasting, is because to me, she's the one with the career to lose. Right? Yes. He's, we had to look up his name in the course of the podcast. We're not going to care about him. And that's why, I mean, I know you're mad at me and saying, no, do, don't do that. But like, we don't have to care about Colt Pratt's. And or he was doing the best of his abilities. Abigail Breslin is the one who was miscast, let's call it. How do you recover from that? What do you do? I mean, we have an interest in that child star trajectory, right? Like we have talked about it before, how you go from being a Kieran and Shipka to whatever it is that Kiernan's going to do. How you go from, I don't know, an Emma Roberts. I was going to say Emma Watson. Emma Watson and all of those. So Abigail Breslin was one of those in that group of Little Miss Sunshine, so precocious, but where do you take your career to the next level? But you know, I wasn't worried about Abigail Breslin uh, in the career sense. Obviously, yes, she had a a long road, but I actually thought of her like a Mae Whitman, uh, somebody who, and not just because they sort of look the same, but somebody who felt smart, felt like she was going to be fine because the roles she was choosing were interesting because she did not appear to be choosing things uh, for paychecks. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but if you are at a certain point and you've been involved in lots of prestige projects, you don't have to, you hope, right? Like Abigail Breslin was in August Osage County, which I will not hear a word against. I loved it, not just because of Julia Roberts. Eat the fish, bitch. Um, <laughs> I, I actually legitimately love that movie. Uh, I'm the only one. You are. I don't get it. Well, why? I love that movie. It's overwrought. But that's but you. The, it was... It was <laughs> hey! <laughs> it's overwrought because it was a stage play. Um, but Abigail Breslin was in that. She, uh, I think, had been doing some stage work. You know, you're she's sort of doing things. She's, but she was in one of the Ryan Murphy projects. No, like yes, American absolutely. Horror you're right. You're American, right. You're right. Yeah, one yes. of those Ryan Murphy American shows. She literally plays uh, Chanel Number no. Five in Scream Queens. Is actually what you're okay, looking right. for. Okay, right. Okay, that's a Ryan Murphy thing, though. That's right. right. Yes. That's right. Okay, was fine. This. Okay, so let's take this from a a perspective of, you know, show business 101. You take on a project. It looks great on the surface. Oh, we're going to do a remake of Dirty Dancing and you're going to play Baby. Okay, great. Who's going to walk away from that if they're cast in that? Nobody. Well, if you're Abigail Breslin and you are like, okay, what do I do now? Um, How do I leading lady myself? Sure. Yeah, of course. 
Right. Great. So you do the thing. And, you know, I feel bad for actors. I feel bad for actors most of the time. But I feel bad for actors because, you know, when they say things that you don't think make any sense and you're like, what is this? Like, I always felt so safe on set. I always felt so protected. I always felt blah, 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 blah. This movie is what they're talking about. Let's just talk turkey. There are so many scenes in which she looks awkward, in which the dancing looks terrible, in which I might argue she's not given the best chance to succeed. True? True. I mean, you're being very kind. And so if we're going to get real and possibly have people get be mad at me again, but the farmer's already mad at me, it's awkward, but it's also unattractive. Sure. And the reason why I'm probably going to get in shit for this is because, hey, looks aren't supposed to matter and this and that and the other. I get it. But this is an industry that is as superficial as they come. Well, I don't even think it's about that, though. Like, I mean… Of course it's about that. It's, it's I don't. It no. has okay, to on. be partly about, like, you know, we're talking about how Hollywood functions. But this… Um, but my… Dis, my discomfort with this project is not because of looks, uh, which is to say that if you say as ugly people in comment sections say, oh, Abigail Breslin doesn't look like, uh, you know, whatever, a starlet looks, which I don't necessarily agree with, but whatever, that's not the issue. The issue is that she didn't look skillful. She didn't look sexy. She didn't look there are lots of people of all kinds of shapes and sizes and whatever who are great dancers who are sexy, who like can pull off a sex scene. You're like, hi. Oh, I agree. And I think that is specifically related to attractiveness. When someone looks like they're not having to work so hard at it, when someone does appear that they have rhythm, they can dance, they can move elegantly and fluidly, that is attractive. What happened is that she was set up Whoever it was there who was around her, choreographing her, helping her train, they threw her to the wolves. Exactly. Because what happened is what we saw was not fluid. It was not choreographed. It was not practiced. It did look effortful. And therefore, it was not attractive. It was not appealing to the eye. And if there's anything that has to have all those qualities, it's the remake of Dirty Dancing. So that's what I mean. She didn't have that support on set, right? She wasn't taken care of. This is one of those situations where if you're looking at the daily, the dailies are uh, whatever's completed that day is sent out to interested parties either uh, on disc or electronically or whatever, and people sort of scan through them. If the powers that be are watching the dailies and seeing that this is a problem, you know, this is one of the problems with filmmaking, right? Often you hear people say, oh, we didn't know it was going to be bad and then it was cut together and it was terrible. Or conversely, we didn't know it was going to be great and then it was cut together and it was amazing because you make films in such tiny bits and pieces. But I would argue that if she wasn't getting better, if there wasn't a director saying to her, you got to find some sort of sensuousness or something in here or whatever. I'm not even talking about the like awkward line readings of some of the lines or some of the whatever. Then yeah, she was done a disservice. And if she couldn't do the role and she couldn't do the role in the way that we feel would have made it better, right? They made all kinds of terrible changes to Dirty Dancing, but had they 
had the core story been something we wanted to hang on to, we would have ignored the fact that Deborah Messing got like three hours of screen time for like her marriage. Well, yeah. I mean, putting all that aside, I think what's what you're getting at here is despite all the fact that it took so many different people on so many different levels to make so many bad decisions, Abigail Breslin is going to wear this the most. 100%. And so given that she is going to wear this the most, where do you go from that? Well, it's a really hard question because you have to question your own choices. You know, I was thinking to myself, she should have been recast. Somebody should have watched this, and I and I say this with as much kindness as I can muster, somebody should have fired her. Um, and that would have actually been being, being kind uh, to do that because it, it's not doing well for the role because you're right, now she's going to wear it. And you can't quit in that situation. So how do you recover is a great question. Luckily, the new season of Scream Queens uh, will come along to to distract us from this and to not have this be the most present Abigail Breslin memory. But I don't know what next. I think think maybe, you know, this is the kind of thing where a self-directed or self-initiated project would really help where a lot of actresses of this age maybe try their hands at directing a short or doing something to put themselves in a different light, to not put so much faith in kind of a networky thing is is really unfair. I I also think about if it were me, but she's only 21 years old, and this is where it's interesting. Again, we go back to all kinds of people on all different levels making bad decisions, and she has to wear it. But if I'm her or if I'm her manager, I'm thinking to myself, that immediate Abigail Breslin support team, the agents and the whoever who set this deal up, I'm rethinking that too. Like there is, and we last week talked about agents and the people who put things in front of you. And of course they're going to be like, yeah, uh, can you please take this project? Cause I want the cut of 10% or 15% or whatnot. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is an example of one of those situations where are you really acting in the best interest of your client? But you know what, though? I'm not sure I, like, look, I'm the first to talk about money-greedy vultures, but I'm not even sure this is that because you know why? I was thinking about her career. I was thinking about um, Little Miss Sunshine and August Osage County and the Ryan Murphy Project, and these are all projects where Being ugly, that is to say, acting in an ugly way or doing unattractive things, turns out to be a real win. Does that make sense? Ryan Murphy is the king of making sort of unattractive situations into inexplicably appealing television. But this is not that. But nobody, how do you know that that's not that until you get there? I mean, look. They never intended, like, I mean, Ryan Murphy, as you said, goes in saying, I'm going to make this unattractive thing on paper become really cool and really hit and really sexy. Right. They didn't go into the Dirty Dancing remake thinking we're going to be subversive. Their intention was to be sexy at the very beginning. I know, but if you're an actor who has previously trusted your other directors who are like, this feels weird, and they're like, trust, trust, it's going to be okay. And then you go into this situation with baby, and you're like, I don't know, I don't know if I nailed that dance step, or I feel awkward. And they're like, whatever, whatever, it's fine. Um, 
how do you know the difference until after, until it's on the cutting room floor or not on the cutting room floor? Well, let me ask you this. At what point can you turn back if you're a network and be like, uh, these dailies are a problem? Uh, cut, cut, cut. Let's dump this. So, well, this is the thing. The longer you wait to make a decision like that, the more money has been spent. Uh, so it's a more and more dangerous proposition the later you wait to make that call. So the first day dailies come in, you look at them, you're like, oh, this looks awkward. But who wants to pull the plug on one day? Uh, then you, maybe after a week, you make a phone call. Hey, these look weird. I don't know. Is this the girl for us? This is awkward. And somebody says, no, it's going to get better. It's going to be fine. It was a rough week, whatever. We're going to get better. Then you wait a few more days. Now, after whatever, eight days, uh, millions of dollars have been spent, you start getting nervous about pulling the plug. It's a, it's a science to either recast or get a new director or whatever, and you've promised that it's going to be on air for this day, which sort of, I guess, was still in May Sweeps, if May Sweeps is still a network thing. Uh, so it becomes a really dangerous proposition. I think that in the end, I'm not sure that ABC would have lost a ton of money off of this. Like, as you know, all these things are pre-sold. Um, I'm not sure that it was devastating for the network, but I do worry that it could be a catastrophic event for Abigail Breslin. Well, that's just it. People are going to tune in no matter who's in it, right? So that part is fine. She, on the other hand, what you're kind of getting at, and I think this is the most important thing for her, but also for us, for anybody in work, is nobody's going to look out for you but you. Nobody is going to make you feel comfortable or make you feel like, oh, it's all going to be okay and don't worry about that uncomfortable feeling except you. You, if, if, like I would argue, this is an experienced actress, right? So I would argue that she knows on some level that it's not going well. Uh, she knows that it's not heating up the screen the way it's supposed to, or at least she doesn't feel it. Uh, and this is probably uh, a lesson in trusting your instincts. If you get a bad feeling, if you are in a situation where you're like, I don't know if this is right, uh, you have to check yourself and see whether or not you are paranoid. But otherwise, this is on you. This is on making sure that you trust your instincts and take care of yourself if you feel uncomfortable. This is also why, just to go on, uh, this is also why sometimes people get a reputation for being difficult on set. Oh, I don't know if I want to say that line. I don't know if I want to do that thing. On the one hand, shut up and say the line. On the other hand, this is people looking out for themselves because if they look stupid saying the line, you're absolutely right. Nobody's going to blame the broadcaster or the studio for printing such a stupid line. They're going to blame the actor. So, for example, uh, you know, people have talked when I've doing, done my deep dive on Dirty Dancing since this about how nobody could have pulled off that terrible line, nobody puts baby in a corner. Right. Except for Patrick Swayze, who made it amazing. <laughs> right. And who himself protested against it, but in the end it was fine. But you have to look out for you because nobody else will. So how is Abigail Breslin going to look out for Abigail Breslin now? So now I guess this is a question of instincts. Now, what else does she have in the hopper? Like, I want to see the, the self-directed things she wants to do. I want to see a movie that she makes with her friends for $8,000 just because. Well, I'm just checking her Twitter. There's not much activity there. Um, there was quite a bit, obviously, leading up to before the show aired. 
Um, and you're saying her Instagram is pretty quiet too? Yeah. There have been posts about how excited they were about the premiere, but there's been nothing since then. And IMDb is telling us that after Dirty Dancing, she has one project that's been completed, Yamasong, March of the Hollows. I haven't heard of it. Let me just see what it is. So it looks like an animated, an automated girl in Turtus Warrior journey with a band of outlaws on an incredible quest. So yeah, I think this is voice work and nothing's booked since then. And you know what? That's great. Voice work is a great way to kind of get back on the horse. And ensemble work, things where she's not out front. Because as you say, this was about sort of leading lady status and it was a, a fail in that regard. So the quicker she gets to a place where she's doing things where there's not so much pressure on her, I think the better she will be able to recover. I definitely think she can recover, but I think that the work of not only, I mean, her work, but also her people, a regroup is needed. Like, I want to sit down. I want to be in a room. I want to be in a room with those people who are making these decisions. I actually think this could be a, a very exciting time. Like, this is what we love, a challenge. How do you rebuild from this? Right. This is the phoenix rising from the ashes. That's right. Not to over-dramatize what was a TV movie, but come on. It was Dirty Dancing. It was Dirty Dancing, and it's bad. Like I said, she's wearing it. So I would be, I mean, if I'm one of those career strategists and we love that shit, I want to be in the room making that decision and giving the advice. Um, I like your advice, ensemble work, some voice work, laying quiet for a little bit, and then figuring out what to produce and what to create with her friends, with her own community, with her own creatives to come back. So I don't think that that it's impossible, but I definitely think this is a major, major, it requires a major overhaul. Yeah. And I think that there's not, you know, if there were hopes of transitioning from this into leading feature film work, that's not happening right now. This is, no, you know, the, the, the next everything, everything equivalent, uh, movie where a a YA book jumps to the big screen. This is not happening for Abigail Breslin right now. No. And the reason why it's not happening is that there's actually, and I, I do not mean to be unkind, but there's actually no positive takeaway. You know, when people give terrible performances, most of the time you can point to a scene or a gesture or even a moment where, hey, I can work with that and let me just pull that out of the rest of the bullshit and then see where we can turn that into something. There was nothing here, no takeaway moment, no one scene, no one line delivery that I can say, at least from what I saw, that I can build on. So you actually have to burn it down to the ground. Well, I would say there that I could give you one and say that when she confronts uh, Daddy, uh, oh, I didn't know you played piano, and they sort of have that emotional discussion about her being not who he thought he was slash not a virgin, that her emotion is really there and really, uh, it doesn't feel like she's forcing it. Like, I bought that performance very much. And maybe if it had been an original picture, then there would have been something to save there. The problem, of course, is that on top of everything else, it's being compared to this epic performance from 30 years ago. So there's not even a, oh, well, she did that emotional scene better than Jennifer Grey because it was it's seen as a misstep, even though that scene in isolation was yeah. a not bad piece of acting. Well, and that's my point, is that everything that you might want to extract that could be salvageable 
is met with a but. But. Yeah. For Gray. But the original. But 1987. But the lift. But this. So I, right now, to me, that's going to be the challenge is how do you actually pretend that that never happened? Or move on from, okay, it happened. Now, like after the uh, ashes, the volcanic explosion, (laughs) (laughs) where do you find a growth spot? But here's the positive. Here's the silver lining. After you've had an experience like this and been panned like this, there's nowhere to go but up. You cannot go down from here. No, it can't get any worse. Yeah. It can't get any worse. Exactly. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe since you've sort of blown it all up, maybe you can actually start throwing things at the wall and doing some really bonkers shit. And lest you think we're being unkind, is it Abigail Breslin's fault that it's all blown up in this way? No, not necessarily. But this is the bitch of Hollywood. And also maybe the glory of it is sometimes shit like this happens. Like it gets thrown your way. It's not fair all the time. But now you're here. Now what do you do? No, but the reason why we wanted to talk about this and why we care is she's not the first actor to have this kind of disaster blow up in her face. And live on her. And live on her. She's not the first actor. The difference here and why I think, you know, if we're going to make a case for all the not-so-nice things we've said about her performance and that project is that we worry. And the reason why we worry is that other people can bounce back. Um, And oftentimes those people are men. You know, Ben Affleck, if he was a woman, could he have bounced back from Geely? (laughs) Well, guess who never did? Like Jennifer Lopez never bounced back from Geely, right? Like there's always a sort of a giggle like I just made after her name when we talk about her starring in movies. Or she winds up in things like Made in Manhattan. You know, there's, there's, you're right. There's no recovery that's as easy. Right. And I mean, Ben Affleck's not going to say it was easy, right? He had to go on and direct movies and he had to do Oh, I'm sorry. Did you just, oh, I'm sorry for you, Ben Affleck, that you had to go and direct movies. Right. That someone, oh, happened to finance Gone Baby Gone or was, is that the movie Gone Baby Gone? Um, And the town was a part of the rebuild. And whatnot. Sure. But you know what? Like, Gili was a fucking embarrassment. It wasn't a remake of something that so many people hold dear, and that's why everybody was so upset. But there's a line in Gili where they're having sex and they talk about turkey basters. <laughs> like, and he's bounced back from that. So the worry here, I mean, the reason why we've spent all this time talking about Abigail Breslin is because this is one of those this is one of those situations where fuck yeah, I want her to bounce back. No, I don't think it's impossible, but I do think it's going to be really, really, really hard and that harder than Ben Affleck. And that's where, you know, this is a spotlight for her too. Okay. Another silver lining. Now I'm acting like an agent in Hollywood. You're talking about her in the same breath as Ben Affleck. We're not talking about her because she was and is an actress with some skill. Like, We're not talking about her the way we talk about, like, God, I don't know, Kaylee Cuoco. Like, if Kaylee Cuoco was was terrible as baby, we wouldn't even have bothered to text about it, let alone put it on the podcast. Right. It's because it's such a surprise for somebody who is so talented. So the silver lining is they're talented enough for us to want them to recover from what has been shocking. Get to work, Abigail Breslin.
Okay, uh, Rihanna and Lupita and the movie that was wished for on Twitter. Or maybe Tumblr. Or maybe Tumblr is now a reality. In Cannes, they sold it. So it's going to happen. Ava DuVernay is involved. Issa Rae is involved. Lupita and Rihanna are obviously on it. So yeah, an idea that sprang from social media is now a reality. Is this the future of how work happens in Hollywood? I've been sort of turning this over in my head all week. For two weeks, I think I've been texting you about this because the answer, I feel, is yes and no. This is this is sort of the perfect confluence of something coming together. Uh, I think that the, uh, the tweet that kind of really got everything going was somebody saying, uh, Rihanna looks like she scams white men for money and Lupita is her friend who uh, helps her plan the scams. Uh, it was just one of the reasons I love Twitter in the first place, because in a few characters, you express such a whole complete idea. You can see it, right? With that tweet and that picture, you kind of get a whole image. So if you're trying to pitch a movie or pitch uh, a show or anything like that, somebody used to say to me, it should be an idea you can see from the sky. Meaning it's so clear, it's so straightforward, you don't need to explain for a half hour, it's right there. That tweet with that picture, it's right there. So I fully understand why this is happening. Obviously, I sort of look askance at are the the writers of the tweet, are the writers of the Tumblr. The Tumblr post was kind of different. Uh, I have since read articles that the Tumblr person and the Twitter person have worked it out. But interestingly, they're both not talking. I'm making air quotes here. Uh, Meaning... Of course, they're they're making some deals. Like once once you hear somebody's like, oh, I'm not talking about this, somebody is yeah. giving them money and saying, you no longer talk about this in public for free. That's right. Um, so that's good news. It is good news. Um, I feel like in in this story in particular, I thought of you so much because of the phrase that um, has been so many times repeated on Laney Gossip. And that is a phrase that you taught me, give them what they need, not what they want, right? When it comes to writing and storytelling, right? well, are you, yes, you taught this to me. Sure. Um, and then I wondered whether or not this situation is one of those rare examples of wanting and needing happening at the same time. Can they coexist? Of course they can. Or another way of looking at it is, do we need a buddy comedy starring two women of color? Uh, who both haven't had the chance to have as much fun on screen as we would like. Yeah, we need that. Yes, we absolutely need the black young version of the heat. Yes. Like, can't you see that? Like the two of them rolling around uh, Rihanna's messy ass apartment uh, (laughs) and Lupita like touching everything with tongs, trying to stay sane in there. Yes, we need that very, very much. The phrase uh, which I was taught uh, by one of my showrunners, uh, give them what they need and not what they want, is to not fall into fan service, right? To not be so caught up in just doing what people want. Like, fans always want people to kiss and be happy at the end. Yeah. Fans want uh, McDreamy and Meredith to, like, go off and have a million babies. But if that was the case, Grey's Anatomy would be over in season two. Yeah. You have to not give in to that because then you have no story. And likewise, if film people had no problems, then they would have no problems, right? Like if if Ocean's Eleven didn't have a case to crack, we would have no movie. So what they want is to have a nice life. Or something to steal. 
or something to steal yeah. or whatever. Like I, I meant like a safe to crack. Right. But yes, <laughs> whatever. Case safe. It's the same. Um, so yeah, it's it's the idea of story comes out of conflict, out of people having to do things. But yeah, I think this is what people need. Yes, I think it's what they want. Absolutely. Is it the way for stars to find their next vehicles? Like I can just see this kind of trickling down and your your B-list and C-list people kind of trolling Twitter going like that. That could be a thing for me. Um, look, this person had kind of a funny idea. Let's get a screenwriter for me. And to that you say… I it, this is <laughs> sit down, step back. <laughs> yeah, sit down. This is lightning in a bottle, um, and it's the exception that proves the rule. You don't pitch movies on Twitter except when you do, except when it works, and this is great and it's amazing. I actually really struggle with this because, um, well, you and I use Twitter differently. For example, um, Twitter is for lots of writers. It's a place to work out little bits of phrase, little bits of comedy. Um, I, I really enjoy it for that reason. I think you have to be kind of skillful. Uh, I don't get Instagram by the same token. Um, teach me, guys. Like, I'll learn Instagram, but it doesn't seem like it's a, a tool in the same way. But this is when it's brilliant, when a brilliant idea can be there in, in you know, sort of 12 to 15 words. I don't know. Is there going to be an agency who devotes an intern to to combing Twitter for ideas? I wouldn't be that surprised. Well, it's interesting you say that because a few months ago on The Social, we interviewed Lindy West. Um, and Lindy West has had a fraught relationship with Twitter. And I don't know if she's still off Twitter, but at the time, she was like, I don't have time anymore to deal with the hate and the bullshit that happens. Lindy West, of course, is yeah. a uh, feminist writer and columnist who uh, is kind of very publicly engaged with Twitter trolls. Yeah. She did a great This American Life story about uh, taking on trolls who are horrible to her on Twitter because of things she wrote, including not being ashamed of her body, which she calls fat. And her abortion. Right. Um, she What was that hashtag? Share your abortion? Shout your abortion. Shout your abortion, yeah. So anyway, at the time, she said, oh, I, I'm not going to use Twitter anymore. And one of her reasons on top of, I have no time for fucking assholes and this and that, was... I'm kind of tired of giving my writing away for free. I want to be paid. I want to be paid for my ideas. So I thought that was an interesting approach because to go back to what you were saying about whoever, the Twitter or the Tumblr people who came up with this concept and now they're not talking anymore. Well, yeah, like it means that something is happening behind the scenes, something is being negotiated and they're probably getting paid. But for the most part, if you have something out there, a tweet, and the best case scenario you can hope for is that it gets retweeted a billion, jillion times, and you kind of get a little bit of a thrill from that. But nothing concrete comes of it for the most part until recently. For the most part. Megan Amram, for example, is a comedy writer who was discovered on Twitter and wrote for Parks and Rec for many years. She released that great book, Science for Her, which is hilarious, uh, has a whole career but she also went to Harvard and, you know, was in those circles that often generate comedy to begin with. It can happen. You can be discovered on Twitter. It oh, sure. It definitely can be a part of your yeah. portfolio. I mean, Kelly Oxford is there, but there are only so many Kelly Oxfords, right? Sure. Exactly. So here's the question. Uh, the thing here is that 
Rihanna and Lupita, as as we say, they both kind of needed this. They both, like, this is a movie I'm excited to see. This is a place for them, performance-wise, where I'm excited to see them go. So my question is, could this have come up without Twitter? That is, did we need somebody from the outside to see them in this way so that Lupita didn't continue to get Oscar bait and Rihanna didn't continue to get movies? Uh, we haven't seen Ocean's 8 yet, obviously, but movies that are only about, I'm a badass with a badass, badass, badass. Well, I think that's where the intersection of want and need comes in yet again, where Hollywood is constantly telling us or in their selections of what they're going to make, um, sure, sure, we know we need more stories about women, more stories about people of color, but the audience doesn't want that. And here you get the, hey, I'm the audience, let me fucking tell you what I want, and also it's what you need. That is that perfect confluence of this is why that's one of those examples. Like I just gave uh, double middle fingers to the idea that uh, the audience doesn't want that. Uh, and well, you know what I mean, right? I know exactly that's what their you excuse. Mean. It's nobody wants to watch a movie, you know, a family drama with you know all women, and nobody wants to watch this. And it's these suits, right? The white dudes in the offices, the suits in Hollywood that who decide what people want. Well, this is the biggest problem, is that the people who are receiving the pitches uh, almost all the way up the board until you get to a certain point, and I don't know uh, exactly who's financing this picture, but until you get to a certain point, people want to hear stories that they relate to. That makes sense. If I come to you about a story about a woman who is hardworking and a little sassy and, you know, she likes some shoes or whatnot, you're going to be like, oh, I relate to that. Uh in a way that you don't necessarily, if I open and say, it's about a Navy SEAL who meets like an army general and they blah, blah, blah. You're going to relate to that less. The issue is that people who are giving the green lights here don't necessarily relate to these stories that are being pitched. Uh, so that's one of the reasons why this is amazing. But I'm also talking about typecasting. I'm also talking about the idea that even an Oscar winning star like Lupita Nyong'o might not necessarily get of course she gets her pick of all the projects, right. but there's also pressure to choose things that are important. Prestigious. Yes. Yeah. Instead of goofy. Yeah. Which is what we want this, you know, as you described in your, I don't know, elevator pitch of Rihanna's apartment and Lupita walking around with tongs, that's kind of a goofiness that we haven't really seen from her except on her social media accounts. Right. Exactly. And I fully ripped that off from the heat, that scene, uh, but... Again, it took a long time, and Sandra Bullock had a much different career, but Sandra Bullock, the Oscar winner, uh, you know, it took a while post-Oscar for her to do this sort of goofy stuff again, and she is a self-confessed goof. So I think this is exciting not just because it's uh, getting these women into, into roles and, and, you know, movies starring two women of color, but also because we get to see them in in ways from the outside that we wouldn't necessarily see them uh, if if we were leaving it up to the studio bosses who really want to capitalize on the prestige and high-profileness of, yes, Rihanna turned actor or Lupita Nyong'o Oscar winner in, I, I have no idea what this movie is going to be called, but I hope it's something hilarious. So I think it's really exciting that we're not only getting to see them in something that was user-generated, essentially, but also something that is a totally different perspective. So this is where I do think it could work. If you, like, who who's your, like, 
pet project right now that you wish you could see more? The a person? Yeah, like an actor um, or performer or whatever. Uh, Constance Wu. Sure. John Cho. Okay, so what's your unlikely Constance Wu pitch? So we know Constance Wu is doing Fresh Off the Boat, and now, of course, uh, she's starring in Crazy Rich Asians, right? What's your unlikely pitch for Constance Wu? Oh, God, I don't even know if I've even thought about it. I, I mean, wasn't it a few weeks ago or now a few months ago where we were talking about a Constance Wu rom-com, and we had cast her in a rom-com with who, – who did we cast her in that rom-com with? Oh, it was um, – oh, it was good. <laughs> it was good. Remember was it we Michael like- B. Jordan? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was good. But you know what's kind of amazing is we've a little bit magic that into being now that she's starring in Crazy yeah. Rich Asians. Uh, we can take credit for that. We, <laughs> we have no credit for that. But what else? Okay, so she's a rom-com star. But what – who else would you like to see her as? Or if it's John Cho, who we've seen as kind of a hilarious, uh, charming – snappy sidekick, who else would you like to see John Cho as? Or John Cho often gets the third lead in like an action movie, right? Yeah. Like I think he's been in some Star Treks, right? I, I'm I'm low on my Star Trek. Yes. I think, yeah, he is, he has been in some Star Treks. Right. So can we see him as, like, I would like to see John Cho as the talented Mr. Ripley. Where's that movie? Um, where's him sort of, you know, changing and, and, becoming all these different chameleons, I would watch that movie. What what would you like to see Constance Wu be? Well, I mean, if you're doing the comparison of John Cho, Mr. Ripley, you're saying, okay, I would like to see John Cho being thought of in the same things that um, Matt Damon is being offered. That is like, to me, that's where my mind goes. Yeah. And not just from a high profile point of view, although yes, but also from a typecasting point of view. You've been talking a lot about Master of None, uh, and this is something that Aziz Ansari really talks about, right? Even when he's playing an Indian character who is American-born, as Aziz Ansari is American-born, it's always, he's always playing a scientist or a, you know, an IT guy or whatever. It's never like, yeah, you never see an Indian guy playing an actor on TV, for example. So that's where you go, okay, well, Constance Wu, probably around the same age as Scarlett Johansson. In that comparison to John Cho and Matt Damon, then I would be like, let me see Constance Wu get considered for whatever you would want your dream Scarlett Johansson casting to happen for. That's what it would be. Sure. Um, you know, and to me, I'm like, I want to see, obviously, one of my pet people uh, is uh, Sashir Zameda who recently announced she has left Saturday Night Live, which as much as I think she never got her due there, I think this is great. She has new roles, but I'm like, what would I like to see her as? I would like to see her as, I want to see a movie where she's a therapist and is falling in love with one of her patients against her will. Like, I will write that movie and you can credit show your work and and come for me and I will write, the, I, I might write that movie on spec. Hi, Sashir, call me. Um, but the idea that we get to see these people through other eyes, right? Like Scarlett Johansson, even to be generous. And again, she gets all the scripts in the world, right? But like, I feel like she could be useful in a role like, remember the good girl with Jennifer Aniston? Remember Mm -hmm. how that helped everybody see her differently? Yeah. Wouldn't it be great to see Scarlett Johansson in clothes from Kmart? Instead of a million bodysuits and like, 
ethereal, like otherworldly roles and blah, blah, blah. Like what if she had kind of a sad life? You know what's interesting is even when she's in period costume, she's still so bodaciously Scarlett Johansson. Do you remember that movie – um, the other Boleyn girl yeah, or the Boleyn yeah. sisters or whatever, and it was Anne Hathaway and Scarlett Johansson, and she was like the not Anne Boleyn sister. Right. She was the um Was that different sweet from sister. the girl with the pearl earring? Yes. You're, yeah. <laughs> this goes back to my point. Scarlett Johansson has never had a single memorable role. <laughs> yes. You're, you're conflating the two for sure, and I don't blame you, but yes, the movie I'm talking about is she played the good girl sister. Not the scheming sister, the one who ended up getting her head cut off. But even in that role, she was, as you're saying, like the milky breasts were spilling over the the clothing. And that was when? Like hundreds of years ago. And even then, it was like this, you know, the ultimately it was uh, the point of Scarlett Johansson in that movie is I want to fuck her. Yeah, exactly. It's it's they sort of went, okay, it's an old-timey movie in Shakespearean times as you as you said so eloquently earlier today. Um I know that it's not actually Shakespearean times. I was just amused by your turn of phrase. Uh and they're like, okay, well, this other princess or or wife of Henry VIII or whatever should be like the girl we want to fuck. Okay, let's cast Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm suggesting what if she was not that in any way, shape, or form? In her mind, I wonder if she took that project to not be that. You know what I mean? In her mind, she took that project to be like, oh, no, no, no. I'm going to be in this period piece thing, and I'm going to play this and not that, and it ended up being that anyway. So in short, this is what's most exciting about this to me, about this idea having been generated from people who will watch the movie is that it is so not typecasting. It's so not where you expect people to to be. And you hear this from successful actors all the time. All the scripts I was getting were the same. This is not the same. And that's what's most exciting about it. Uh, protect your tweets. Protect yourself. Don't think that you're going to sell uh, a movie for seven figures based off a tweet. It's not going to happen. But if you think about stars in unlikely situations, you're more likely to create something that is unusual and attention-getting. I would like someone to, like, start something for John Cho, though. Now that we've had this example happen, do you remember a couple years ago they started that hashtag starring John Cho and yeah. they replaced him? And I don't know if maybe the industry wasn't ready for it at that time yet, but I wonder if it had happened now, if we'd see a different result. What's stopping you? All right, I'll think of it this weekend. <laughs> Good. Get to work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So on the subject of what Hollywood wants and what Hollywood makes versus what we need, um, the Upfronts wrapped up, what, it's a week ago now, a couple weeks ago? TV Upfronts, yes. So yeah, the TV Upfronts, of course, most of you probably know by now, is when the major networks, no, all the networks actually, present their fall programming to advertisers. This sets the ad rates for the upcoming season. It builds, generates 
uh, excitement about the shows, about existing content, about their favorite uh, hit series from the year before. This Is Us would be a good example of that. And so now that we've had time to look at what all the networks are doing and sort of step back and take a big picture view of the content that um, show creators and showrunners are selling, um, IndieWire has, you know, made an analysis. Um, they posted an article with the headline, Women Leads on TV Decline as Networks Discover White Dudes in Crisis. Huh? The networks had made big strides in representation over the past few years. Have they fallen behind on gender? So this piece goes on to actually take a look at the slate of programming that the networks are giving the viewers and, um, you know, the, the numbers don't lie. There are now more on the new slate of, of programming that's upcoming in the fall um, of approximately 36 new series, just 11 have a first build female. Last year, there were 41 new shows of which 20 had a female lead. So we've gone from almost a 50-50 split, right? 41 new shows, 20 had a female lead last time in 2016 to now 36 and 11. So that's what? A third. Right. Less than a third. So what's happened? Why are we on TV going back to a time when um, what they think we want and need, I guess, is white dudes in crisis? Well, here's what's interesting. We talked a little bit earlier about who makes the decisions and who makes the decisions about things about people or shows that look like them. And I don't just mean looks in so many words, right? Uh, I'm not just talking about white men greenlighting shows about white men, but that if you are a middle-aged dude in crisis, you want to watch a show about a middle-aged dude in crisis. What I think is really interesting are the names that are highlighted in this article. Uh, some of the leads in the new shows are Jason Ritter, Zach Braff, Bobby Moynihan. Uh, they're all these kind of… Jeremy Piven. Jeremy Piven. Uh, I mean, Jeremy Piven. Uh, Josh Radner. Josh Radner? Mm-hmm. Josh Radner got that role? Anyway, they're all kind of everyman's. They're all, Zach Braff is the kind of epitome of this, right? He's kind of cute, kind of funny. He's a guy who looks like the guy who thinks he looks like that guy on TV. Um, so these are all meant to be not super hot leading men, but like kind of average dudes just living their life. Because what I think we know is the average dude tends to think he's a little bit hard done by right now. There is a certain movement where if, you know, when you hear people say, oh, there should be more diversity on TV or film, or if Jill Soloway says, oh, you know, uh, we, we need more shows focusing on the female gaze, that there's a certain kind of person who's like, well, well, well so my gaze doesn't matter anymore? My, my vision, my representing me doesn't matter, says a certain kind of dude. And so the, the situation we find ourselves in is all these men, both in front of and behind the camera, are wondering what the point of their lives are. That's what's most interesting to me about this article is that it, they're all like, examines his life after a midlife crisis or changes up his life to live by the Bible, which I think is actually going to be a great show. It's based on the A.J. Jacobs book, and I'm very excited about it. Uh, but there's all these ideas of 
men in the world wondering, where do I fit now? And I think that's probably a real meta statement based on what's going on in the bigger world right now. As more and more people get and find a voice, as we say, hey, we want to see more people of color on camera. We want to see more women on camera. All There are dudes who are going, well, where do I fit? And then making those into shows where people are like, yeah, where do dudes fit? Let's investigate this. And so I roll my eyes. But we've always seen this trend, right? I mean, in this article, they say that women are willing to watch those shows. Women are willing to watch shows about men. It's the, what, reverse, inverse, that is not necessarily true. Where they're saying here, quote, and that's the dirty secret of network TV. Women viewers watch series with male leads. It's harder to convince men, particularly young men, who barely watch network TV at all, to tune into shows with female leads. Right. So this is bullshit. Uh, Or it's manufactured bullshit. The idea, this has been sold as long as I have been interested in TV, long before I worked in it. The idea, and they tell you this for kids, they tell you this for adults, that uh, girls will watch boys programming, but boys won't watch girls programming. Can we just look at this another way and say, actually, girls have no choice but to watch boys programming? Uh, in kids' TV, actually, they are often segmented and aimed directly at one group or another. But on network television, which, by the way, is less and less relevant, uh, the shows are often there's no choice. If you turn on the TV, say, Wednesday at 10, if you have no option but to watch men on television doing man things, I have no idea what's on Wednesday at 10, but I assume it's various shows with the name Chicago in them, uh, then that's what you watch if you are somebody who watches TV and gets your entertainment that way. Uh, it's not like they have all these women-focused shows to, to prove this wrong. If there was a given time slot, say Thursday at 9, where there were all female-led shows on the air, I don't think you'd find men turning off the TV. They would find a show that they wanted to watch and watch it. I strongly disagree that this idea that it's like, oh, well, they just won't watch. No, given the choice, they will watch something that looks like them. But women watch men on TV because they don't have lots of other options or didn't before Thursdays in Shonda Rhimes. I want to believe you, but I have seen also evidence to the contrary. Um, This is, if we want to move this over to film as well, this is an issue that was being uh, discussed and observed about a year ago Um, Nico Lang for Salon was doing all kinds of studies of reviews for movies and television where the reviewers who are, as we know, film critics and TV critics, more and more now there are women, but primarily they have been traditionally men and how the reviews were coming down uh, for female-driven vehicles. Meryl Streep said herself that the reviewing process for films was actually being handcuffed because women were being sort of viewed by the male critical standard. And typically they were seeing trending where male reviewers were giving female-led projects a lower review rate. And there was like a whole thing of how that affects box office and this and that. Um, And the whole point was that men were incapable of watching female products men were incapable of watching female projects with the same level of empathy, whereas women who watch and have been forced to watch 
only male programming for so many years have been able to apply their empathy to those characters and to those stories. Now, the reason I bring that up, um, to your point, is because while I'd like to believe you, that is one set of evidence or at least one set of examples and one sort of storyline that would suggest that, you know, what they've written in IndieWire here about men not wanting to view female-led projects could be true. But also in my personal life, I have seen it happen. Not to call Yasik out, but I will call him out. The Handmaid's Tale. I'm obsessed with the show. You're obsessed, you're obsessed with the show. We are all obsessed with the show. I am his wife. I share a home with him. We like to watch things together. He refuses to watch it. His reaction to The Handmaid's Tale was, don't like it, could never happen, not interested. And it's not just Yasik. I have done a casual poll. No, that's happening at my house too. Oh, great. Okay, so I've done a casual poll. I haven't done it at your house, but I've done a casual poll of, at work of women I work with and their husbands as well or their partners, their, ma- their male partners, not interested. And to me, I, was, I, t- I took a step back. I was like, I think Yasik's a feminist. I think he cares about female programming. He certainly helps run this site. He certainly understands how passionately I feel about these kinds of projects. And yet he refuses. Not only does he refuse to watch The Handmaid's Tale, but he was, abs- he was dismissive. Okay, but let's break this down for a second. Because there are also a lot of dudes who were dismissive of Big Little Lies. There you go. Uh, which is a totally, totally different conversation. Uh, I think it's partly about presentation. When you talk about, oh, the film critics who view things review things poorly because they can't see through a female lens and women have been trained to see it. Yeah, that kind of illustrates my point, which is uh, that, you know, when women, when you present sort of women in frameworks that men understand, not that we should have to, things do better. Like here's the, 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 except the examples that sort of prove what I'm talking about, bridesmaids did absolutely gangbusters numbers, right? It's literally about bridesmaids, and it was a hysterical hit comedy that did incredibly well. I think even The Heat that we talked about recently did incredibly well. Common Denominator, Melissa McCarthy, maybe. But Hidden Figures, where we have been told over and over that you can't have a major studio movie starring women and black women, to say the least, was a giant, giant box office success. Um, So, Things can change. People can be trained to see things differently uh, and to see successes if the story is attractive enough to them. Where The Handmaid's Tale is concerned, where Big Little Lies is concerned, because of course those shows are about exactly the same thing, despite seeming different. They are both exactly about women who have to figure out a way to operate in men's worlds. Uh, It's not attractive to men because... They don't want to confront that problem. They don't want to discuss that problem. It's easy for everybody to watch Hidden Figures and be like, yeah, and it's better now. It's not so easy to watch something and go, oh, that is uncomfortably familiar to how things are today. Oh, it might require me to change. And that's the point about these TV shows that we were outlining. They're pointing out to men, gosh, your life is hard gosh, there's no need for you to change. We we feel you that your life is hard. They don't need to watch shows about women in given situations because 
they're not a, they're not about them. I'm sort of thinking now even about scandal, uh, where there's this incredibly powerful woman who influences the president and the way that the United States goes. And I'm going, oh, but it's a fantasy. Nobody's reacting to that or sniffing derisively at it, which they are, because it's a fantasy. Ironically, The Handmaid's Tale, which takes place in a dystopia, feels more like it could be real, like it could be true. And that's one of the reasons it's not attractive to dudes. Uh, I'm painting with a big brush here, but because they would ha- maybe have to confront, oh, if I, if I, you know, oh, this is a thing that could happen if I continue to turn a blind eye, which I think was Margaret Atwood's point, right? But to go back to your point about hey, you don't actually think it's true. You do think that men, when given the chance, will watch female-led programming. Then does it have to not be so close to home? Does it have to not be so confrontational to how they have to change? Because that is a problem too. Sure, it's a problem, but we're not going to do whataboutism, right? We're not going to say, well, what about the fact that blah, 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 blah. I think that I'm not going to get into the context of saying, Well, if we make entertaining programs, then they will come. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm arguing that I think partly this is about the metrics of network television, which is a more and more antiquated way of counting viewers and counting TV, uh, that they're chasing an audience that isn't necessarily going to be there. And that's why you get shows like This Is Us, where while it appeals to many, 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 many women... um, as I've criticized it, uh, the the female characters on that show are kind of cardboard cutouts a little bit. Uh, the men get a much more sympathetic three-dimensional portrayal than the women, even though it's supposed to be a show for women. So I think what I'm saying here is that the shows that have women at the forefront unapologetically uh, are doing well in positions where we want to see them. Big Little Lies was a massive success for the network. Uh, The Handmaid's Tale is a huge success and has already gotten season two. Uh, Shows like Jane the Virgin, shows like Catastrophe, shows like Broad City that have women out front, they're just not happening on network TV, which is more and more kind of the dinosaur of the conversation. So speaking of, and finally, yes, um... Do we need to care about this week featuring Robert Pattinson? I don't think that this is directed at me because I've been writing about Robert Pattinson for years because of Twilight and on the blog and this and that. But you, I don't think I've ever exchanged a more than two-sentence conversation with you about Robert Pattinson. You simply don't care, have never cared. And so now I'm curious, um, I'm curious about whether or not you can ever care about Robert Pattinson. He was in Cannes. His film screened to rapturous applause. There's speculation that this could take him to new heights in his career where he could be an actor who, when he works, he'd be considered for awards. At the time of this taping, we don't know who is going to win Best Actor in Cannes. It's not a huge prize. Like, let's please let's not give it more import than it deserves. But they're saying that it's between, it could be between Robert Pattinson and Adam Sandler, which <laughs> also is hilarious. That's amazing. Um, and Vulture wrote a piece a few weeks ago about Robert Pattinson after The Lost City of Z came out. He was... Um, I'll take that again. 
Vulture wrote an article, Kevin Lincoln did, about Robert Pattinson after The Lost City of Zed came out. He was a supporting character to Charlie Hunnam, um, a very strong performance, I think. I didn't see it. And then now he goes to Cannes, and they're saying that in Cannes, in this film Good Time, he um, has delivered the the most outstanding work that he's ever delivered. So, I mean, I know the answer to this already. I can see the expression <laughs> on your face. But as sort of a joke, I wrote about it the other day saying, hey, I'm going to make Duanna talk about Robert Pattinson and uh, asked all of you to chime in. And some of you did, but not that many, which says to me that maybe a lot of people don't care about Robert Pattinson. No, I got one email and two tweets from people saying, come on, care, uh, care, Duanna, you should care about <laughs> Robert Pattinson. And uh, which is pretty amusing. Uh, and so, but my question to you is, before we get into whether or not I care, uh, and I have a very specific reason about why I don't so far, I want to know why I should. Like what, it, you just listed a whole bunch of accolades, like, oh, he might get this and blah, blah, blah. Um, but why should I care? Which is to say, what is he providing in the entertainment industry that we don't have or that I'm missing in my life? That's a very good question. You know, I, I feel like that's a very good question. Um, I am going to do my best to take on the role of Robert Pattinson supporter. Sure, sure. Right? And I, I will try, for those of you out there who are Robert Pattinson supporters, I will try to defend your position. And just before <laughs> you take this on, I want to point out that, yeah, we are, we're, we're doing this. We're taking on the two sides of a debate. And I know right. that this is not necessarily maybe where you fall. And I know this partly because I got a tweet that reads, uh, at Duanna Lee's, talk about Rob for show your work. Lainey is in, all caps, Lainey, ha, 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 come on. So I think her point is, if you're supporting Robert Pattinson, then that means that uh, as unlikely as that might be, that I should probably take uh, a look. I would like to say that that's a misrepresentation, um, but let's play. Ready? Yeah, let's go. Okay, so I would say that the closest equivalent to Robert Pattinson in my eyes is Orlando Bloom. So Orlando Bloom landed with Lord of the Rings yep. and Pirates of the Caribbean. He's beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, he's English. I think he is. Like, I don't care enough to go look it up, but we're going to talk accents and the English thing and the looks he's, and sure, the whatever. He's, he's not North American. And so afterwards, Orlando Bloom was going to be a big fucking deal. And then Orlando Bloom made a series of over a decade of creative professional decisions that did not work. I mean, there is an awful Cameron Crowe movie. It's called Elizabethtown. I didn't hate Elizabethtown. Oh, it is. He's, I mean, I feel like you didn't hate it because of Kirsten Dunst and That's Susan correct. Sarandon. That's exactly right. Right. Susan Sarandon and Kirsten Dunst. The movie is not ostensibly about Kirsten Dunst and Susan Sarandon. But again, I'm going to be interested in the people who are interesting to me. I don't care that much about Orlando Bloom's pain. Exactly. And the thing is, the movie was about Orlando Bloom's pain. But you're not selling me so far. Anyway, so Orlando Bloom, well, that's right, because I'm talking about Orlando Bloom and you want to check out. So that, to me, was, I was curious to see if after Twilight, Robert Pattinson was going to be Orlando Bloom. Well, I guess why? Like, let's, here's the thing, because you have a very interesting thread uh, of tweets that we'll get to in a minute about people who are, are sort of talking about Robert Pattinson post-Twilight. 
But I guess what I don't understand is why we're talking about that. We don't, why do we need to talk about people post giant franchise uh, in the context of being actors? Uh, which is to say, you know, if we talk about, oh, say, Rupert Grint, for example, uh, who actually is in a new show. What's that new show called? I don't know. We all, we don't always need to. <laughs> but I guess that's kind of the point. Um, you know, post-franchise, not everybody is going to become an actor, right? So w- there's this enthusiasm for Robert Pattinson becoming an actor. As opposed to staying a movie star. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And why is that such a thing? Why do you want it or why do people want it? I think that it's because we've seen so many people become movie stars before becoming actors. Yeah. Right? The usual path is actor, then they land that movie. Like, take Chris Pratt. Right. Chris Pratt, actor. Now Chris Pratt, movie star. Uh, sure. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to further parse that. Uh, somebody says there's a drinking game on this podcast when I say parse. So oh. there you go. Drink. Um, but I would say Chris Pratt, comedian. Uh, you know, or he… Comic or, actor. Yeah. Or as you would have said derisively once upon a time, TV star. Uh, so I, I will clarify that. It's not like he was doing interesting work in small indie films necessarily. Yeah, Chris Pratt, you mean. Yes, Chris Pratt. Yes, that's that's right. Yeah, okay. So I think that, you know, to go movie star and then go actor for some is interesting because is it sustainable anymore to stay movie star or is it more sustainable to be, hey, I got my big box office, whatever, everybody knows my name, and now I'm going to go, you know, the serious route and be an actor. Right, do interesting things. I guess. Right. Like… I mean, I'll tell you, maybe I'm not doing such a good job anymore being on the pro Robert Pattinson side. I'll tell you that this is like the fucking Leonardo DiCaprio thing. Like, everybody wants to be Leo, right? Titanic. And then, oh, but Leo is now getting taken seriously. He doesn't want to be on the cover of Teen Bop anymore. He's not the king. Or what's that line? Uh, What's the line from the fucking boat movie? The, The Titanic movie. I'm the king of the world. Right. Right. <laughs> the fucking boat movie. Uh, I'm going to pitch that we titled this podcast The Fucking Boat Movie, by the way. Um, right? So then every actor, every fucking good-looking white actor is now like, Leo's my hero. I don't want to do the big splashy things anymore. I want to take the Leo route and be like broody and never smile in my movies. And that's what Robert Pattinson has done. He's basically, since Twilight, taken on project after project in which he does not smile. But that's everybody's route. Like, you can't do it the other way around. It is much more difficult to work your way up through indie films and then become more and more noticed and then become uh, somebody that is now in the running for big things because if you do, you're Brie Larson and nobody cares about you, right? Like, it's it's much easier to come up in a mainstream way and then go and do projects that matter. The interesting thing, or not interesting, depending on how you think about it with Robert Pattinson, is that he's been doing this in his defense. I'm scrolling through his list of projects post, uh, post-Twilight, and the projects are mostly interesting. Uh, one of my big issues with him, which is not his fault, but I did try once to give him a chance. I did try to 
say, okay, I'll see who this person is. And I saw that movie, Remember Me. Oh, yeah. I don't know. Like, look, I'll take the position again of the Robert Pattinson purist. They would say, that's not post-Twilight to Anna. He made that movie on a break from one of the Twilight movies to the next. Okay, I get it. Listen, but, I like, ha- like I'm here f- taking on a role. I'm putting on a hat. Okay, here's the thing, though. Then we have Water for Elephants, Cosmopolis, Map to the Stars, uh, The Rover. Uh, I'm just pulling out the high-profile ones here. Queen of the Desert. Childhood of a Leader, Lost City of Z. There have been kind of prestige projects for a while. So, but is is he fighting against something that doesn't exist? Like, maybe he's just an actor. Like, why are we having this conversation? Is he protesting against something that is not happening? Here's my objection. Let me take off the hat now. Here's my objection to these articles, these vulture articles, and these, like, you know, I I appreciate that people want to write articles to showcase how Robert Pattinson is doing good work after Twilight and whatnot. But my objection to it is why we even need an article like that. Why is that shocking? To go back to your point, why do we even have to talk about this? Exactly. Here's a guy who already had a mega franchise. Is it hard for him? Is it hard for him to actually be in these Is it hard for him to actually be in these places? You know, Orlando Bloom comparison aside, being attached to a project is also helping a project when you're Robert Pattinson. Sure. He's big enough to get the movies made. That's right. So when you're a small town, when you're like a small time independent movie producer, or you have this great script, when you go to Robert Pattinson, automatically you're going to open up so much funding. Great. For it, right? Right. Especially the way the business works now. Orlando Bloom, I don't know. I don't know if Orlando Bloom had that leverage. I don't know if Orlando Bloom had that clout. But also, he was never, like, let's be real here. Lord of the Rings was a big movie and all, but Orlando Bloom was never Robert Pattinson. Like, people like Orlando Bloom. I'm sure people wrote some fan fiction about Orlando Bloom, but like, there were not. Like, I'm pretty sure there was a period of 10 years where Robert Pattinson couldn't walk around undisguised, right? Like, he was a mobbed individual. He probably still can't. Right. Um, And so, yeah, I agree with you. Like, to me, that's why I had to take off the hat. That's why I had to, like, I could no longer sort of take the position of the purist and the supporter because, listen, there's nothing really to have to defend here. After Twilight, he could do whatever he wanted. And if that meant doing the smaller movies, he still had an advantage over other people because by nature of who he is, those projects are going to get fucking made. Right. And and to take that mantle or even put the supporter hat back on, uh, he is doing them. He is a working actor who is working, and ostensibly because he has more money than God, he's choosing the projects he wants to choose, right? Sure. To his credit, he is allowing filmmakers and storytellers who otherwise would not have had a chance, he's giving them a chance. Fine. Good for you. But you know what? If I have to like highlight somebody for doing that, I'd rather go the route of Daniel Radcliffe. So what do we want though? Like what is the, not only what is the argument, but like what do we want out of this? What do we want to hear in terms of like, are we not going to be happy until he is the biggest movie star in the world? Isn't that kind of what he's trying to get away from? Is he, like, again, I asked you, 
what's he doing differently as an actor? What is he contributing as a performer that's new and different and interesting? You said a really funny thing uh, about the best actor at Cannes may either be Robert Pattinson or Adam Sandler. And to me, Adam Sandler is the more interesting conversation because of the ongoing debate about whether he can act. So what do like, what's the conversation? Why are we talking about this? What is there to say about Robert Pattinson? Okay, he continues to be in movies. Congratulations. Well, I guess, I mean, the Vulture piece um, that Kevin Lincoln put out um, was titled The Robert Pattinson Career Makeover Playbook. And to go back to Abigail Breslin, we are talking here, we do talk often about career makeovers. Yeah. My question, I guess, for you is, can we actually label this a career makeover for Robert Pattinson? I don't care. Like, no, because he's a, like, like makeover for what? Like, he's a leading man. He continues to be a leading man. That's great. The end. You know what conversation we're missing here? It's the conversation about half Nelson. So Ryan Gosling, uh, who, of course, made The Notebook, and it was all like, oh, my God, he's this big romance star, and he's dating his co-star, and it's so romantic, released Half Nelson almost immediately afterward. And it became about, oh, Ryan Gosling is shooting heroin? Like, that love interest, that leading man is shooting heroin on screen? Okay, this is not who I thought it was. This is a different person this is changing my perception. And then all of his choices after that, Lars and the Real Girl, blah, 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 have been unusual or different. I have never seen that from Robert Pattinson. Well, I mean, I feel like it's an interesting comparison because I, I many years ago, I remember reading an interview in which Robert Pattinson said that uh, Ryan Gosling's career was what he was modeling his after. So... um. The purist, the RP purist would say, you can't say that to Anna because you haven't watched all his movies, so you wouldn't know. But I guess the point is, is that whatever he's doing to promote the movies on the outside, in addition to just doing the movies, has not been like enough of a draw for you. It's not just him and his promotion, but like, you know, again, you compared him to either he'll get the award or Adam Sandler will. Adam Sandler is the most interesting, is the more interesting comparison because he's not always seen as an actor, but then sometimes he acts and we're all like, oh, wow, look at that thing that you did with P.T. Anderson. Um, you know, it's it's a, a real conundrum. Will he or won't he? Can he do it or can he not? And Robert Pattinson is always kind of doing it. You know, it's a Leonardo DiCaprio thing wherein... He was playing the same thing over and over again in order to get that thing which we all knew he wanted, which he stopped denying he wanted, right? He wanted the Oscar, and so he did things and climbed inside a bear until he got an Oscar. Oh, this is the one who's going to get the Oscar. This is the one that's not good enough to get the Oscar until he did. I don't know what Robert Pattinson wants. Does he want the Oscar? Does he want just to be a leading man? He's a leading man. If he wants to do comedies or be seen as kind of a wacky, out-of-the-box guy, he needs to go to an out-of-the-box place. Well, like, I want to just read out a few tweets that was sent to us by V, um, because in response to uh, me saying, oh, should we put this in the podcast, this is what V had to say to us. 
I could care less if you talk about our paths, but can you at least acknowledge that case do and women in general have to work twice as hard to get as much recognition? Kristen has done twice as many movies and been highly praised for them all, even winning awards. And while she certainly is acknowledged for it, all our paths has to do is be in one good movie and people talk about his post-Twilight career being on par with hers, when that's not really true. Even Kevin Lincoln said, when all else fails, copy case Stu's career moves. Just a bugbear, smiley face with a winky eye and tongue out. I mean, I, I appreciate the the email thread, but I actually don't I don't agree that he's being compared to hers. He can't he can't compare to her. She's done so many interesting things. Uh, and maybe we talk about women in the media differently, but I'm like, okay, she's done X, Y, and Z movies. She's hosted SNL. You know, she saved still Alice for me. Like that's kind of how I think of her as being somebody who has actually left that franchise behind. Uh, and actually making choices in different roles where I'm like, I don't see any comparison there. He, as I say, as I keep saying, he continues to be a leading man. Snore. Uh, I think what you hit on there was um, the saving Still Alice part. Look, Still Alice, even though Julianne Moore won an Oscar for it, was not a great film. Not a good movie. Her performance as a standalone was fine. It was great, obviously. I mean, she won the Oscar. She's Julianne Moore. But... What brought that film together, as you said, was Kristen Stewart. Which is weird because she was just playing, you know, she was playing one of the three kids. She was obviously playing the one of the three that was supposed to have a role. That's why she's a name and I have no idea who played the other two kids. Uh, and Alec Baldwin was there and whatnot. But she was so watchable and so interesting and actually made that movie. She was the person in that movie that I cared about. Well, if we're going to do this then, and like as V is saying, making that comparison, I don't know that Robert Pattinson has saved a movie. Now, he's cast in movies as the lead, so that's actually your job, is to be the movie. Right, and that's when we were talking earlier today about like Dirty Dancing, and if you are the lead in a movie and it sucks, you did not do your job, you didn't save the movie. That's right. As a supporting player though, which Kristen Stewart was on Still Alice… She did her job, which was to play the role, the character that she was cast for, but then she ended up also doing more than her job, which was saving the film, being the connective tissue of the film. Yeah, rising above her station. It's one of the things, actually, that we often talk about with character actors. Like, weirdly, the person who comes to mind is Alan Cumming. You know how whenever Alan Cumming is in anything, he's usually not the lead, and we usually are all are like, I just couldn't wait for Alan Cumming to come back on screen. Kristen Stewart is ostensibly a leading woman, but she acts like a character actor in that she's an interesting person to watch, uh, often more interesting than the leads. I don't get that from Robert Pattinson at all, or I haven't gotten it. No, I, I, and I think that if, if we're going to care about Robert Pattinson, is that what he would need to do? One of the things. Do something interesting. Like, I just, again... You know, as you say, there are people who will say to me, well, you haven't seen all his movies. I bet he kisses people tenderly in them. Like, I bet that he... <laughs> Put that on your resume, Robert Pattinson. What are the things and the roles that Robert Pattinson can play? Well, give him a role where he can kiss someone tenderly. I'm saying, like, we're talking about typecasting today. I bet he kisses people tenderly. I bet, like, there are long, lingering shots of his eyes. Like, if you want to see something different, like, cast him as the second punk thug in a group of punk thugs who, you know, hold up a convenience store in the movie Go. 
I know nobody actually holds up the convenience store, but like, remember those movies where you got to see people be interesting when the whole movie is not sitting on their shoulders? Like, let me see him do something unusual and interesting and maybe I'll start to care, but there's been nothing that makes me think that he's worth more discussion than what we've already spent. So the answer then to the question, do we need to care about Robert Pattinson, uh, is a resounding no. However, would you be willing to revisit the question in, I don't know, a year? Yeah, of course. I, I could conceivably care. I am willing to care, but there's no need to do so just yet. You know why, though, right now you don't care? Why? Is because there's someone who's doing all the things that you wanted and much, much better. And that's why maybe he feels so irrelevant. Just someone? Well, someone, many people. But yeah. if you want like an exact around the same age and, you know, profile and this and that, Jake Gyllenhaal. I knew we weren't going to get out of this discussion without you mentioning Jake Gyllenhaal. I thought about talking about him circa Ryan Gosling. I was surprised that we went by. Sure, Jake Gyllenhaal, who I think sort of suffered from some of this and then did, depending on who you ask, uh, Brokeback Mountain or Nightcrawler, right? Like, was seen in a totally different way where you can't make it without that person. That maybe is the most important thing here. Robert Pattinson is fine. Robert Pattinson is starring in movies, but he's not essential to the Hollywood ecosystem. There are not movies that can... Oh, good one. Like, there are not movies that can't be made without him, right? There are roles that can't be made for anyone except... Matt Damon, as we discussed, or uh, or Melissa McCarthy, or Ben Affleck, or Julia Roberts. There are roles that can only go to these people, you know? Or I would argue, if you want to go younger, like there are roles that can't be made without Emma Stone, or, uh, or without Anne Hathaway, or without Lupita Nyong'o, but there is nothing that cannot be made without Robert Pattinson. He is inessential. All right. Sorry. <laughs> Chris Stewart, on the other hand, rapidly becoming indispensable. And let's end it there. Uh, thank you so much for listening to Show Your Work and caring about work as much as we do. Special shout out to the person who wrote the blog post, Why You Need to Be Listening to the Show Your Work podcast. Thank you so much. The reason why we wanted to shout you out, though, is not just because we wanted to give ourselves a compliment, but because... You're taking the themes that we're talking about here week after week on the show, like working capital and protecting your work and applying it to your own work, and we could not be more flattered. There are all kinds of notes and emails that we love getting from you guys, but hearing about how these conversations about celebrities and Hollywood machinations apply in your own lives are particularly exciting. So that's really fun. Thank you so much. So Eva is a freelance writer. Her blog is called Brimming. Um, check it out and keep working, Eva, and keep working, everybody else. And thank you so much for listening. Check us out on iTunes and Google Play. And we'll talk next week. Bye. Bye.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.